Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Rhode Island History Podcast. Uh, I'm really excited for the guest today. That's David Scott Malloy. He's going to talk about the Rhode Island Carmen Strike of 1902. But actually, we're going to get into labor history a little bit more broadly. It's no coincidence that Rhode Island is full of labor history. Most of the most well-known works on Rhode Island history involve labor in some form or another, labor strikes, and even the first episode of this podcast was on the macaroni riots. So I'm really excited about this interview because I think that the Carmen strikes is super interesting and it also shows the dynamics between Pawtucket and Providence, the differences there, both uh, nationally, ethnically, whatever it is. And it also, Scott and I talk a lot about the the hardships of historical research, especially when you're trying to put together uh, a, a readable, digestible uh, book or pamphlet or article or whatever it is. So I do have to say before you get into this that we're sorry for the audio quality. Uh, we had to resort to a, a caveman type form of recording through the phone so please bear with that there's some points of clarity and there might be some points where scott breaks out a little bit so bear with us sorry for the audio problem but i think that basically the interview is clear enough that you can enjoy it and i hope that you take a lot from it once again if you like and you want to support this podcast please just subscribe to it on spotify or apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get podcasts share with your friends share on twitter or wherever you do social media and that's the best way that you can help i'm not asking for money for this i'm not asking for for anything else except for just a, a sub- subscription and a share so thank you so much and here is david scott malloy Hello, my name's uh, Scott Malloy. I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Rhode Island, and prior to that, for 13 years, I worked at the Rhode Island Public Transit Authority, driving a bus and uh, holding just about every union position uh, that there was. So I was able to uh, uh, merge uh, the world of academia with the world of work, and that's been a lot of fun. So uh, we're here today to discuss uh, a little about transit history uh, in the state. I, I like the idea of trying to merge the world of work with academia because it seems like the history of of labor in general, especially labor scholarship, has been sort of the opposite of that, right? You get um, people in academia who are writing monographs about working class movements who themselves may have never been part of the actual labor force. I, I suppose people... Uh you know, from any walk of life can have sympathy for uh, other aspects of what's going on in the world, and I suspect that's part of it. Uh, labor's always to uh, a heavy degree the underdog, uh, which always uh, uh, draws a lot of uh, attention. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is one of those, as, as you mentioned. Um, and from there, I lost it just for a minute. So your your work was is primarily on uh, transit labor in Rhode Island, particularly in uh, Pawtucket and Providence, right? 
yes, the the transit industry, which was important to just about every state where it uh, made its appearance, uh, was particularly so in Rhode Island. Rhode Island in 1902, when they had the big strike, uh, was the most uh, heavily urbanized uh, and industrialized state in the nation. Uh, there were more people per square foot than anywhere else. And we're still number two. New Jersey uh, finally took over. So um, transit was very important to people. Uh, there were factories, mills, and plants just about everywhere you looked. And, uh, you know, for a nickel ride uh, by 1900 or so, uh, a lot of people, uh, rather than walk, uh, took a, a little jiffy ride in the uh, uh, electric trolley and uh, got back and forth much quicker than uh, walking. So when you, I mean, before you went on to write, you, you've written a number of articles, I think, on the um, on transit labor history. Um, but when you were getting into it, what was the, the historiography like? What were the kind of sources that were available on this topic in specific? Yeah, I always remember very distinctly years and years ago, uh, uh, when I first started driving a bus, which would have been back in the early 1970s, uh, I wanted to put together a history of the union and the company. Uh, I always noticed that uh, uh, company history seldom contained anything about working people. It was as if uh, uh, they were empty, uh, devoid of uh, human beings. Uh, but in labor history, just to be honest, you have to talk about sim- not simply the employees, but also the employer uh, in order to get a well uh, a rounded feel for that. Um, so I, uh, that's what I did. And, uh, the material was very scant at first. I went to the Rhode Island Historical Society Library, the second oldest, I think, in the, in the nation and, uh, a million documents. And when I first went in, I said, uh, where is your labor section? And I remember the clerk saying to me, the what? I said, the labor. <laughs> collection. Uh, I, she said, I don't know what you mean. And I had to explain about fish and chips and triple-decker tenements and strikes. And, <laughs> and finally, they had a few things. It was nothing. A couple of scattered items here and there. And uh, I said, oh my goodness, I'm not only going to have to write this book, I'm going to have to create uh, the information pile uh, to go through. And that's pretty much what I did. And that's why it takes me forever to write a book. <laughs> so you are, you are coming at it uh, fresh. You, there was really not that much historiography, if any, on this topic when you were going into it. No, in fact, uh, not just transit history, but uh, labor history in general, despite the fact that Rhode Island was the birthplace of the uh, Industrial Revolution going back to 1790 uh, with the establishment of Slater's Mill uh, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Yeah, it, se- it seems bizarre. And even, uh, you know, talking about the, the so-called macaroni riots and, and stuff yep. like that, there's um, there there was a Karl Marx club on Atwell's Ave who were responsible for organizing a lot of labor movements, um, but their archive seems to have completely disappeared. Uh, yeah, a lot of that would have been uh, very transient, especially among... Uh, recent immigrants, and we'd be talking about uh, Italians in this particular instance. So yeah, I got two things against you. One, they're new, pe- new people, and they're probably not uh, up to uh, keeping records the way you might 50 years uh, later. And secondly, they're writing in a different language. Yeah. Uh, most of the things they read and did, at least in that first generation, were in local Italian 
mm-hmm. newspapers, not local English uh, newspapers. So uh, that would make a, a real difference. Also, the um, that macaroni riots uh, was tied very closely to the IWW uh, indirectly. And, um, again, they were suppressed and uh, chased and, and whatnot, so a lot of records probably got lost with that uh, as well. Yeah, uh, but the, the, the Carmen strike in which we're talking about happens a few years before yes. the macaroni riot. So can you set the stage for the Carmen strike in 1902? What are the tensions that are building here, the, the sort of precursor yeah. to the strike? The, the, the biggest one, and it goes back a few years, but uh, was uh, in 1842 when they had a thing called a door war. And basically it was about who could vote. Or in the Republican eyes, it was who they wouldn't allow to vote, which was just about everybody. And so Rhode Island history is, has been forever since either changing that to liberalize it or else explaining it uh, one or the other. So by 1900, uh, there was a red-hot uh, a feverish pitch to make the final changes. Some had been made over the years, but not all of them. And working people were still treated as second-class citizens. Uh, the GOP, the Republican Party, uh, had its own sheriff's uh, department that went out and did its dirty work. Um, and, of course, the police were there to help uh, just in case. So political power was uh, put in the hands of uh, the elite uh, the aristocrats working out of Providence, and they were able to pass uh, just about everything they wanted because they controlled the state legislature for 50 or 60 years. Yeah, one character that came up in, uh, I read this article from the Radical History Review, um, one character that came up was Nelson W. Aldrich. So who is, yes. who's Mr. Aldrich? Yeah, Nelson Aldrich was a uh, rags-to-riches uh, Rhode Island story, uh, worked in an apartment store or a hardware store, uh, became uh, a master of minutia in uh, weighing things and looking at tariffs and how much it uh, imposed on them. He got into politics, became governor, uh, became uh, a representative, and then went to the United States Senate and worked his way up there to be known as the general manager of the United States, which meant all political paths in Washington, anyway, had to go through his office, including those by the president, <laughs> because they were they were uh, uh, had to rely on him. Uh, so Aldrich was one uh, very uh, intelligent and very uh, uh, evil in some ways individual. He um, he passed legislation. He would often pass it for for his friends. He passed money for the American Sugar Company. The sugar company was very vulnerable to imports, maybe from Cuba, or whether they took their own from Louisiana. He concocted a tariff which helped the American sugar industry, and they then lent him a million and a half dollars, which he took and purchased what was then known as the Union Railroad, which would soon become the Rhode Island Company, the streetcar uh, works. And um, once he did that, uh, he consolidated it, and then a few years later, uh, sold it to a New York uh, syndicate uh, to run it from afar, which created a, a firestorm of criticism in Rhode Island. And that, like that, that 
process seems to further alienate the Rhode Island workforce from the management, which is, as you said, based in New York, right? Right, and 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 the, and the local management, of course, would be under the uh, the thumb of uh, who's ever running the place, regardless of where it is. So uh, they weren't going to get any breaks there by having local management and uh, what they often call foreign interests, you know, in some other state. So. What led to the the workers wanting to form a union in this case? Yeah, there have been uh, a few earlier attempts. Uh, uh, there was one in the uh, 1890s, and uh, it, this was all under the rubric of the Amalgamated Association of Street and Electric Railway Employees. I've memorized that. I didn't read that. Um, and the old timers used to call the Amalgamated the Lamigated because it was easier to pronounce. Amalgamated is more of an English word. Uh, England English than uh, uh, American. So um, as conditions deteriorated, as they were bound to do, because with a new syndicate in town, their only interest was to make more money, not less. And so they would try to take away any little benefits uh, uh, that the common enjoyed. At the same time, uh, these motormen, conductors, and drivers were agitating for, for a 10-hour day. Some of them work 12, 13, even 14 hours a day uh, without any real break. And so they were trying to get a 10-hour day passed. And it did get passed in the legislature, which was uh, amazing. But the company refused to follow it, uh, brought it to court, and that indirectly pulled the trigger uh, to the famous uh, June 1902 uh, streetcar strike in Providence and Pawtucket. So why was the management in this case so resistant to the possibility of, of unionization? Yeah, there's always two things with unionization. One, uh, any company that gets a union is going to have to give up some of its power uh, to its workers. It's just the nature of what a union is and what they'll do because they're going to want to say and what goes on around them. And companies do not want to give in one iota uh, when it comes to things like that. Um, uh, and secondly, uh, they never wanted to give in, and this is the problem of uh, getting older, and I haven't been on a bus in a long time. Um, <laughs> good. Uh, uh, so they didn't want to give in, first of all, and then would the the union would have taken significant power away from management at, in New York, or particularly the Rhode Island branch of this of the railroad company? Yeah, the local management really didn't have much to do with uh, stocks or stock sales or things of that nature. They just tried to make a, a good uh, uh, showing uh, for their masters wherever they uh, might be. So, uh, But the big thing is, if a union gets in, it's then going to have the power to create a 10-hour day. Right. And they're not going to work 10 hours and work for less money. If they work for 12 hours at a certain amount of pay, then they're going to want to work 10 hours for that same amount of pay. So they've cut their week down by a couple of hours uh, a day. So there's always something that unions can stick their nose in because they represent the people that work there. And I know myself as having been a union leader, uh, you do tend to get involved in everything that's around you because, lo and behold, uh, it all leads back to you. Uh, you can't escape it. You have to get involved and you have to try and shape 
the milieu and the atmosphere uh, that surrounds you. So the unionization effort was led mostly in order to bargain for a 10-hour workday and then also to, would that increase the pay of the, the railmen? Well, I mean, that's what they were thinking, uh, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I always tell my classes that, listen, there's always three things that, that will uh, uh, appear and reappear. One of them is wages, usually first and foremost. Second will be uh, uh, benefits, and the third will be um, working conditions. And so sometimes and, and errors, you know, have, have a greater emphasis on one or the other. In this period, it was usually money. But the 10-hour day uh, was important and seemed very draconian uh, to the eyes of the passengers uh, who then joined the strike uh, to help their beloved common uh, beat this uh, uh, hated company. And there's a, there's a difference between um, the Pawtucket Carmen in Providence too, right? You you sort of spell that out out in your article. What is the difference between there, other than, or maybe it's just age or ethnicity, social composition? Yeah, uh, th there's not too much difference uh, in age, although in Pawtucket and Providence it was a generational thing, partially. The old timers, I mean, they didn't want to go on strike. They've been there for forty years. They didn't want to lose what little pension they had. They they were afraid, quite frankly, and I don't. Uh, 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 blame them one bit. So it wasn't necessarily generational. That had a lot to do with the the um, the statistics there. Uh, the nationalities eh, a little bit different, but not nothing fantastic there. Providence was to Rhode Island what Paris was to France. It was a city state. The power emanated out of Providence because of where the businesses were situated, all the banks pretty much on the same block or two. Um, the state legislature, uh, the biggest police department in the state, was well, all in Providence. And uh, they can be pulled out at a moment's notice, and including the Republican Party at the legislature. In Pawtucket, on the other hand, in 1900, a Democratic Irish Catholic mayor had been elected, the first one in uh, Pawtucket history. His name was John Fitzgerald. He was militant. He was a trained lawyer. Uh, and once he got involved, once he became mayor, he did things like force the rail company to rip up 300 yards of its tracks because they had put them down too late. And he, he forced them to rip them up. And I was like front page news, and he became a, uh, uh, a great champion of uh, working people and ethnicities. So... Uh... In terms of the strike itself, I mean, how did it start and how did it unfold? Did it get violent or, you know, how long did it last it, for? Yes, it, got, uh, it got very violent uh, by anyone's uh, uh, standards uh, in, uh, in 1902. Um, I, I would say the, the precipitating force was, well, a general uh, framework but also that 10-hour day. That seemed to be the trigger that uh, got everyone going. Not simply the streetcar employees, uh, but their patrons and passengers uh, as well. So that got it going. And then on the second day of the strike, before too much had happened, uh, the, the strike is about 500 of them marched through Providence into the city, and they were greeted when they got there by 20,000 supporters, this largest 
demonstration in Rhode Island history uh, up to that point. And that unleashed a uh, stream of, of violence. There were attempts to tip over streetcars. Uh, they, they chased uh, scab uh, motormen and conductors. But then that changed quickly because Providence being the center of law and order, despite the number of people opposed to the company, they were able to clamp down. Pawtucket, on the other hand, has a sympathetic mayor. He's going to go to battle. He's looking for statewide attention, and he's going to get it. And he does things like he deputizes strikers into the police force. I mean, this is unheard of. Um, The the, uh, militia is sent into Pawtucket, and... They, because they're made up particularly of working-class people, have no love of the streetcar company, and they almost mutiny. In fact, the the local (laughs) newspaper wanted them to hang a few of them uh, to teach them law and order themselves. So uh, there's all sorts of different uh, gives and takes uh, between the two sides, but uh, absolutely a a tremendous uh, uh, adventure story. What were the... What were the forms of violence, and, and is there any indication in the sources of, of who initiated it? I mean, was it yeah. was it the strikers or the police or, or maybe a third party even? Who knows? Yeah, I would say that um, uh, probably the, uh, the protesters, uh, who weren't necessarily the streetcar workers, but uh, the people who rode uh, with them, these people are sick and tired of uh, law and order control of their lives, uh, keeping their wages down and so forth and so on in the legislature, that they embrace what I kind of call a uh, guerrilla progressivism. That is, middle-class people, of which there weren't a million in those days, but middle-class people, even they get sick and tired of waiting for the ballot or to get into a voting booth maybe in a year or two to vote something out when it's already been done. So they would actually go out onto the streets and block the streetcars along with working class people from the same neighborhood. This is a, an incredibly unusual alliance uh, at this particular moment in time, uh, not only in Rhode Island, but uh, anywhere. Uh, push came to shove. Uh, eventually, bricks and stones were thrown through virtually every window of the few streetcars that still went out because most of them got kept in the garage because of the, uh, the violence. In some cases, uh, cars were dynamited uh, on the tracks. A few got pushed off. Uh, the sheriff's department, under the control of the Republican Party, shot some 14-year-old kid in the throat, which really incensed uh, the yeah. uh, community. So there were these kinds of uh, street violence. And it went on amazingly for a month. But the reason was Mayor Fitzgerald took everybody on. And the street company and the law and order people were so hated by the uh, inhabitants of Rhode Island that they said, hey, what have we got to lose? So they went out and gave it their all. Yeah, it's amazing that there are people ripping up stones from the street and throwing them at <laughs> at the police in this case. I mean, it's like images of the, the French Revolution or even 1848 in, yeah. in uh, Europe that... You know, as a European historian, primarily, I'm sort of used to those images. But yep. coming from Rhode Island, it just seems bizarre. It is. And it was interesting, too, when 
they eventually sent the uh, uh, National Guard or the militia uh, to Pawtucket because it was the, that was a statewide decision. And when they did, because those militiamen had working class sympathies, there were actually some strikers uh, in the militia yeah. <laughs> who got mobilized <laughs> to go and put down their fellow colleagues and refused to do it. And what happened is that the militia then began to harass company officials, scabs, anybody that got in their way. The mayor just looked the other way as much as possible. And um, it was really a, a, a dynamite uh, waiting to go off, uh, which it did on a few occasions. But the interesting thing was the sheriff's department, which is a whole different entity from the militia, was under direct control of the uh, uh, GOP. When they went in, they were hated. They were seen as stormtroopers for the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, they were beaten up, uh, brutalized, hit with sticks and stones, and chased through yards. Uh, people pulled their clothes off and made them run through yards naked. It was incredible. But, and they were, they were injured and wounded time after time. The militiamen, on the other hand, who in other places and times will be the enemy, not here, they are unwounded. There is not one injury among any of them because there was mutual respect between the demonstrators and the militia who didn't like the sheriffs either. So uh, quite a tale of uh, intrigue there. I wonder if you have any sense of why that changes over time. I mean, as you say, the, the militia... Uh, in this case, are sympathetic, but later on, they're not going to be so much. And I wonder if if you have any theory about what is it over time that changes with the militia from their working class sympathies to... Yeah, Um, part of it, at least in other spots in the nation, I wasn't so sure about here, and I'm not even sure I I looked at it, to be honest with you, but um, the, uh, the militia in other places will be professionalized, uh, taught army tactics, mm-hmm. uh, have annual practices. Uh, they'll sign up more middle-class, upper-class people to keep order. But Rhode Island was so working class. Uh, it was also, by the way, probably the wealthiest state in the nation at the time. It was all because of the textile industry. But Despite that, you know, poor people were still poor. They weren't making a lot of money. Uh, it all percolated uh, to the top. So uh, R- Rhode Island would be uh, would resist that because it just with so many working people and there weren't enough of the other kind to go around to fully staff uh, the militia. And so there's a big strike in 1934 uh, over the National Textile uh, Union strike, which is a national one, and. Um, the uh, militia in, in Rhode Island, again, take a rather uh, uh, uninterested <laughs> stance against the strikers. Uh, I mean, they're still a little pushing and shoving, maybe more than they have been in 1902, but, you know, compared to other places, no, this was, uh, this was pretty uh, heady stuff to see these two groups not fighting it out. I'm wondering if, in, I mean, in, in subsequent strikes that happen in Providence or Pawtucket, we know for a fact that um, there are socialists that are involved, whether it's labor itself or or just as sort of agitators. And one of the major questions of 
labor history in in general or, or yeah. left leftist theory more broadly is this question over organization or spontaneity right do these do these actions happen spontaneously because of work or anger or are they necessarily always led by some kind of agitating party or agitating individual and so i'm wondering i mean what's the what's the power dynamic in this case in the carmen's case is it just workers no i, I mean i think the union came in the amalgamated from washington dc uh although they were probably in detroit at that time um they came in and they, they were organized and it was a militant union the william mahone who was the head of it for 50 years was a close friend of Eugene Debs. He was a, a socialist himself. Uh, he believed in militant uh, demonstrations. Uh, he often uh, tried to provide locally alternate forms of transportation, wagons and whatnot, to get people around while the strike went on. Uh, he would, as a public relations ploy, uh, offer to sit down for arbitration. No company in their right mind was going to sit down for arbitration yeah. if they didn't have to. But in the public eye, it, did, it made the company look bad. You know, they, they weren't willing to negotiate. So the amalgamated gave a certain degree of organization. I think in Providence, the Pawtucket, however, that the anger had gone so far, had percolated for so many years, that when it exploded, uh, I don't think it would have mattered who was around to organize them. Uh, all hell was going to break loose, uh, and it did. Uh, in terms of the left wing, um, surprisingly, Rhode Island didn't have a, a strong uh, area there. Uh, there were some socialists here. Uh, I know there was at least one um, leftist who ran for lieutenant governor who was a streetcar uh, employee. Uh, but I could never find very much connection there other than the fact that the Socialist Party or the Socialist Labor Party or some of the, uh, the IWW, some of these other groups at that time, uh, would, of course, endorse strikes in newspapers or yeah. uh, at uh, demonstrations. But uh, they didn't really have the manpower. And uh, a lot of the, some of these other strikes outside the textile industry, textile was where it was at in Rhode Island. And so that's where the socialists were, more so than in other crafts. So in terms of source base, I mean, you mentioned that you were sort of the first to go into <laughs> the Rhode Island Historical Society's archive and try to look at this stuff. But, you know, there's the Providence Journal at the time, but there's also yeah. other smaller journals. What was the what was the sort of dynamic of reportage on this? Who was sympathetic and who wasn't? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and, and one that was very important nationally as well as uh, locally. Um, there were a lot of newspapers in that era, and a lot of them were party newspapers. That is, the Democratic Party might have had a couple, Republicans might have had three or four of them, uh, the Liberals might have had one. And so there was a lot of opinion uh, flying around uh, to influence people uh, one way or the other. So today we might look at the newspaper for objectivity, although I'm not so sure about that. Uh, but back then, uh, objectivity was a, a rare a bird indeed. Everyone had a uh, an axe uh, to grind. But in terms of finding material, and, and this goes true not just for transit, but for almost any strike in the world, um, working people, by and large, are not known for keeping diaries, 
sending letters back and forth unless it's wartime, and oftentimes they'll get tossed by some grandkid who doesn't realize the importance of it. Um, they um, they just didn't have uh, a lot of material left behind uh, for people like myself to suddenly, you know, just show up and say, hey, where's that collection you've been hiding all these years? Yeah. And, they, and again, they look at you like you're crazy. So what I had to do, and what I know other historians have had to do, you've got to create your own archive. And so I used to go around the flea markets. I'd go look in the craziest places. I went to the, the Union Hall, went through everything. I went to the uh, amalgamated headquarters in Washington, D.C., and took a week's vacation to do it uh, and went through all the stuff they had. I did oral in with uh, people uh, who had been involved. So it was kind of a full-court press on my part or any labor historian's part to uh, recreate the past. It just wasn't very uh, easy to do. But I have to say that if you keep at it and you keep checking and you use your imagination, uh, you can come up with a lot of stuff. There is an amazing amount of work that goes into original historical scholarship that I think increasingly <laughs> today people sort of take for granted. Uh, yes. Um, so... It's kind of refreshing to hear the amount of research that you did, but at the same time, I know that sometimes you can spend all of this time composing, <laughs> uh, you know, the 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 book on Rhode Island labor strikes, only for it to get recognition from a handful of people. Uh, so, what was the feedback that you got f after writing this? Well, there were several incarnations of of what I wrote. Uh, the initial one was in 1978. It was a uh, a pamphlet, uh, kind of a down-to-earth pamphlet about the history of the Union. 60 pages, but a lot of graphics, very very well laid out. And uh, I was still a bus driver. And um, we uh, printed that up, a 1,000 copies. The local newspaper, one of the reporters, took an interest in what we were doing. And so they had my mug on the front of... Uh, page one one day on the newspaper talking about this pamphlet and so uh, we had to go print another 500 copies but most of the employees on uh, the uh, property uh, at the bus company you know bought a copy sometimes bought a couple of copies one for their father or whomever may have worked there before them and so we got a lot of publicity that went a long way and then I wrote a scholarly article that uh, just looked at the 1902 strike the, the earlier one was much more comprehensive although shorter. And then uh, when I got around to writing, uh, while I was still driving a bus, I went back to uh, uh, college, to Providence College, to get a doctoral degree. Uh, I call it the Alter Boy Special. Uh, it took me 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> On a part-time basis, I was still driving a bus. and um, so it was, But it was a lot of fun. You know, I felt a great sense of achievement and uh, uh, that I had accomplished something that other people would have just thrown their hands up and said, Hey, if the material's not there, I'm not looking. I always laugh about people who write uh, biographies of George Washington, Ben Franklin, you know, the usual suspects. Their problem is they go into some library that has nothing but that person's history right. and source material from A to Z, and they go in, and their problem is there's so much material they can't handle it. We're coming from the other end where there's so little material, we can hardly do it. So it's one of those uh, ironies that you come across. Or the or the case uh, in Providence in particular when it comes to U.S. history where a lot of the material 
is in a different language, as you said, as you mentioned. Um, where is the material? No, I, I mean, just in general, the, another one of the difficulties, you know, if you go to yep. George Washington's archive, it's all right. in English, really. There, there, there's oh, no, that's right. There's no kind of like linguistic training that you have to do to read that stuff. Well, you know, Rhode Island's a real polyglot place, and, and it remains that even to this day. I mean, it's always been the, the magnet for immigrants because we had thousands of uh, unskilled jobs that, that people could fill. Didn't make much money, but, you know, maybe it was better than the old uh, uh, country. Uh, but if you're a serious scholar, and let's say you're doing uh, the history of one ethnic group or another in Rhode Island, which is another, in another language, which most of them are, uh, while there's some material around that we've saved, uh, there, there's not a lot to be uh, discovered. And uh, even people who, you know, really, truly want to get into it, you know, they, they don't have the mastery of the language. They don't have the ability to interview people necessarily, uh, you know, unless they picked up English along the way or the, the grandchildren remembering. So, um, yeah, it presents certain challenges, but, you know, when you get over them, you feel uh, pretty good about it. So, uh, I guess as a, a parting question, the last question is sort of trying to tie it into what's going on now. Both of us read the news or watch the news or whatever, however you get your news. And labor issues are a hot topic again um, in, in the recent maybe 10 or so years. Uh, hearing more about the IWW again, coming, coming back from the dead. Uh, and so, how do you see... What's going on now in light of what you wrote about or what you wrote about in light of what's going on now? How do you relate these things? Not easily. <laughs> the world is so upside down at the moment. It's almost so difficult to get your hand on it. Um, for example, one of the greatest problems facing today uh, at the workplace is that they don't have enough workers because of the COVID and a whole host of other things that are going on at the same time it puts the people who are working and particularly if they're members of unions or want to start a union in a tremendous uh they're in the catbird seat uh they can get uh, uh extra money they can form a union they can get more benefits uh because labor has become very very valuable whereas before the uh, epidemic um you know there was still seemingly a lot of people around and uh, they could hire you for what they felt like giving you but now uh, working people, uh, and a lot of them immigrant labor, uh, have the ability to, to speak out and uh, to get more. Uh, you know, how long that's going to last, I don't know. But uh, I think that's the uh, nexus uh, right there that uh, depends on the scarcity of labor, uh, just like it always does on how much you have in supplies. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I guess we should end this episode by uh, just saying what happened with the carbon strike what was the the end result we'll get back to it yeah um as i say they lost although Pawtucket would still be on strike if uh if they could have got away with it uh but i think they felt they were overwhelmed there weren't that many of them uh in Pawtucket uh to begin with um but what happened uh is that in 1912 the uh, amalgamated organized the Boston Commons Union. These were people who worked on the, 
the Boston MTA back uh, then. And what the amalgamator would do, anytime they won a victory, if there was another city nearby that they had experience with or seemed ripe for uh, organization, they'd send all the organizers right there. And, of course, Boston's only 40 miles uh, from Providence. So they flooded uh, Rhode Island with all kinds of uh, organizers. And in 1913, uh, they were able to get the union in and get a first contract. And uh, But it took them, uh, as I remember, uh, four different... Uh, attempts uh, to actually organize the place. But the amalgamated, because I think of Mahone being the, the, the radical that he was, he, he would never let a place, he would never abandon a place. Mm. He'd always return. He was like General MacArthur, I'm going to return. <laughs> and he would, he'd come back and eventually organize just about uh, everybody. Just to give you one, see if I can find this one quote I got right here. Um, between uh, Eight, 1895 and 1920, 1895, 1920, 25-year period, the amalgamated uh, organized approximately 1,000 local divisions. Wow. 300 of them stayed in business because some came and some went because of uh, local conditions. But they were very, very active. And the, the battles they found themselves in, they called them either trolley wars, or car wars, meaning streetcar wars. And um, they were the most violent strikes uh, in American history at the time, with the one exception of strikes in the coal-producing regions of Pennsylvania and places like that. But these were uh, real battle royals, and uh, I'm surprised there's not more work done uh, on them. There's maybe 10 or 12 articles on different cities uh, but uh, it's tough to, for, the, for reasons I mentioned, it's probably just as hard for them to find material as it was for uh, for me. Yeah, the the militancy of of like all the rhetoric of battles and wars and stuff like that is is really interesting. The way that they saw this stuff. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's uh, it truly uh, makes your head spin. Well, I've had you on for about 40 minutes right now. I think that that was a great uh, interview and great discussion, great introduction to the Carmen strike and labor history in Rhode Island more generally. So thank you so much for doing this and for being patient with the whole recording uh, debacle. No, I, the only thing I'm sorry about is uh, it's been a while since I've done so, a lot of these raids to be able to be a little more glib and bang things right off the top of my head, but a few times here I got caught up in my own thoughts, so uh, next time you hear me, hopefully I'll be a little clearer. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great. Thank you so much. All right, Alexander. Thank you. We'll be in touch. Be in touch. Right. This episode is brought to you in part by the Bristol Historical and Preservation Society, which occupies the Old County Jail at 48 Court Street. Learn more about Bristol's history and what's currently on display at www.bhpsri.org. Thanks for tuning in.